I feel like I've been dosed up on prayer this morning. Any more, I'm worried I'm going to fall flat on my face or something. Because <laughs> I feel uh, just this morning such the presence of the Holy Spirit. And, and what great worship songs and what a great encouragement. Um, you'll see on your um, kind of notice sheets, uh, I really struggle with the title of this. And I think you'll see on the notice sheet it says, Feel Free. Well, yes, the theme is there that I want you to feel free by the end of this session. But I went for the more boring title, if you want to put it that way. Jesus and the law. Um, and I really want to emphasize the Jesus bit in this message because um, I think we all kind of struggle. Can you read that? Yes, it was bigger on my screen when I was prepping it. Um, knowing what to do and how to behave is easy, right? We've all got a moral compass. We've got, you know, sometimes known as a, a conscience. You know, you be nice to your mum, buy her flowers. You know, you uh, say hello to people in the morning. Um, you know, the things that we take for granted, I mean, you don't kill anyone, you don't steal stuff. It's all quite easy. But uh, when you start to come into a church context, um, denominations, what's that all about? That's like different styles of doing church because Christians disagree on, on ways to worship, for example. So perhaps it's not as easy as we perceive. There's abortion, which of course instinctively say, well, of course that's wrong, but, but you know, what if it's a choice between a mother's life and a baby's life? Same-sex attraction. You know, you've got people who uh, you know, really believe how wrong that is, and then they, they really struggle. You know, day in, day out, they carry such a burden to be celibate and to try and honour God. It's difficult for people. Divorce, remarriage, should we have a Christmas tree? Some people get upset about that stuff. Should we support and honour the military? We find ourselves wrestling, and that's why I've got the picture in the background, which is a bit blurred of some wrestlers. We find ourselves wrestling with how to behave, and we discover that we disagree with others in the wider church world. So, let's turn to the Bible to find out. It's easy, right? My notes are in the wrong order, so I'll read from the screen. Don't have tattoos or piercings. Leviticus 19. I'm having a quick look around the room. (laughs) (laughs) Women should wear head coverings in church. Don't wear clothes made of both linen and wool. Check your labels, people. Don't eat fat. Don't work on the Sabbath. No Christmas shopping people on Saturdays. It's not as clear as you might think. We wrestle. Uh, and it can be really confusing. So, really, I just wanted to emphasize how extremes of going down this route of finding, you know, what's the Bible say, what must I do... It kind of generates this kind of thought of the Pharisee in all of us. For those of you who are more familiar with the Bible, there's a a bunch of Jews called the Pharisees. Um, In in Jewish history, you know, there there was a big exile and the Romans came in and they couldn't really worship. They really wanted to worship. And the Pharisees were a sect 
that, w- that would respond to that by going ultra-pious. They'd, they'd study the law and they'd have this big tick list in the morning that they have to get through all these laws in the day. And that would drive them. And they would lose uh, an aspect of how to love and deal with people and God's heart for people. And we read in the Gospels of how Jesus treated these Pharisees. He had some very, very harsh words for them. One of them I remember, you brood of vipers, he said. Vipers being very symbolic, the snake in the Garden of Eden, the father of lies, the devil. So it's so harsh that he had words he had for the, for the Pharisees. So many of us, we kind of seek some sort of law or a set of rules to live by. It's then how we can validate whether we're a good person. We need to try and hang on to something saying, you know, am I a good person? If I've done well, the danger is that can start to lead to a subtle arrogance. I've got it right. Then once we've got it right, we then have a tendency to turn our attention onto others in judgment. I'm right, you're wrong. Big warning. If you're going to go down the law route, if you're going to go down the rules and regulations route, you could turn into a Pharisee. And we know what Jesus says about Pharisees. So what does the Bible really say about this stuff? Well, first things first, we really have to go back to basics. What is the Bible? Uh, I do a whole... um, Uh, session on this on my Bible Foundation course. So I've just picked out a few summary points just to really try and get us to understand what the Bible really is. It's kind of first steps, fundamentals. It's ancient Near Eastern literature. And as such, it has a context of the ancient Near East. It's no surprise then when we're opening up our Bible and we're reading it through that there's this funny stuff in there and stuff I don't quite get. And, and the translators who translate the stuff into English, sometimes even they disagree. So that's why we have the different versions of the Bible. And you know, how do you represent what's going on here so that we, in today's modern English, can understand what it's getting to? So you have Bibles like the English Standard Version, the New American Standard, that try to make it more literal translation word for word, and that makes it a bit more, say, complex for us to read and understand. But then you've got you know, books like the, the, the New Living Translation or the Message or the Passion Translation. That actually, they make an honest, genuine, faithful attempt at communicating to us what, what was meant by what you're reading, by going back to the ancient Near East. When we read other documents that we find from the time, we find very similar funny stuff. And actually, you know, you can see how the Bible is very much respecting the context of its time because it's common with other pieces of literature. For me, that's just one of the little tick boxes that adds the credibility of what we're reading is genuinely of the time. It was written predominantly for Jews by Jews. Another context piece. For us to understand what we're reading and to really get what God's saying, we need to kind of get our headspace into what was a Jew thinking when they were reading this. It's one 
the Bible is one overarching narrative that points to Jesus. That's what it is. And, and I really want to pause there for a second because if you take anything from what I say, when you approach the Bible, read it in the context that what we're reading is pointing to Jesus. Right from the very first chapters of Genesis, there is a foreshadowing, there is prophecy of one who is to come through to the last chapter in Revelation, the glorification of Jesus and, and his kingdom and us as his people. The whole thing ties together. It's a book full of wisdom. And wisdom in the Bible, uh, I, I heard this great analogy uh, from a, a PhD kind of Old Testament uh, Bible professor. He said it's like a blueprint. God has designed a blueprint for the world and the universe of how things should work. And I don't know if you've ever done it or seen somebody try to plane a piece of wood. You plane along the grain because then you get nice shavings off. But the minute you turn it around, you try to plane against the grain. It splinters and gets messy and horrible. So the way that this guy described wisdom was actually living your life along the grain of the blueprint that God has designed. And when you don't follow wisdom, that's when things start to get splintered and messy. Wisdom does not mean that this statement of wisdom, this is always going to be true every time. It's not a set of rules that you do this, then therefore this will happen. Wisdom is about, well, this is how it's designed to work. And on the whole, on average, this will be, go well for you. And therefore, I'm a statistician. If you put lots and lots of those little individual sessions in, on the whole, the law of averages, you'll come out good. It's a collection of different genres of literature. Is that the wrong one there? Yes. Sorry, my notes are slightly different. Um, collection of different genres of literature. Uh, so I've got a couple up there. Narrative. Most of the Bible is narrative. There's poetry that we read. Now, we know that we need to read poetry very differently to the way that we read narrative. Biography. You know, the Gospels are typically a you know, biography kind of genre. Wisdom books, they are written in a very different style. So if you're at a restaurant and someone was to give you a menu, you kind of know what to expect when you're reading it. I'm going to expect to see food, I'm going to expect to see prices. If somebody says, for sale, one Toyota Yaris, you think, hang on, this doesn't fit. Therefore, when we read the different genres in the Bible, we need to know what we're reading to then start to set our expectations of what we're reading. Did I cover all of those? Fundamentally, what is the Bible? It shows us who God is, who we are, why we're here, and our future destiny. It has a climax at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the one and only way to bring us a new and abundant life. That is what the Bible is. And you can really start to see that when you start to approach the Bible as one overarching narrative with the pieces all beautifully joined together and give us this message. 
Not many of us get this information when we're first in our lives handed a Bible and say, read that. You can see if you don't appreciate the foundation, you can start to get some mixed messages. So if, if you don't appreciate that stuff, then we have a tendency to abuse the Bible. And in doing so, we rob it of its beauty, its clarity, its depth, and its overarching message. It's when we kind of appreciate this stuff and then we start to invest and invest and invest that this stuff really starts to seep out. It is not. Now, hands up anybody who's heard this phrase. Basic instructions before leaving earth. Who's heard that? Well, who's said that to somebody else in the past? I have. Well, I take it by putting your hand up, you're repenting. Because uh, that is not what it is. It robs the Bible of its beauty. It is not a set of instructions. For those who are not familiar with it, the letters of each word spell out Bible, which is why it's a nice, funny thing for Christians to say. The Bible is not a book of law. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are known as the Torah. And that is often mistranslated as law. But what Torah really means in Hebrew is teaching or instruction. Words that are more akin to the word wisdom than law. Treating the Bible this way will leave you confused and dissatisfied. So we need to figure out, really, how will we get some stuff out of this this awesome book? Because I've just kind of described a, a few problems for you. It's a great safe bet to go back to what Jesus says. Mark 10, 2 to 5. You probably read it by the time I found my notes. These were in the wrong order, by the way. Here we go. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them with a question. What did Moses say in the law about divorce? Well, he permitted it, they replied. He said a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. But Jesus responded, he said... He wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. Straight away I got a message about the law there. The law is not God's ideal. In fact, what we read here, God is making concessions for his people, Israel. There is a higher standard that we are all called to than the law. Interesting context. See, God is a God who loves us and is considerate for Him to do something to help them. In this example, the law is not the final word on how we should behave. Another example. 
You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Again, Jesus quite clearly tells us here, the law is not sufficient. It's not good enough. See, the law had a very clear purpose in the context by which it was given. God was, was, I'm going to paraphrase, he was marrying his people. Back in Exodus, Mount Sinai, you know, the very famous story where Moses got the Ten Commandments, there was a covenant relationship being formed between God and his people. God said, I will be your God. If you follow these laws, I'm going to take you to this promised land. Things will go great for you. If you don't, things will go really, really bad for you. So it's up to you. Moses comes down the mountain. All the Israelites said, yes, we will. We're marrying you, God. We're going to have this relationship. And the terms of that covenant was the law in the Torah that we've been talking about. This law was given to the Israelites for a clear purpose. Therefore, we need to understand that when we open our Bibles and we read these things for ourselves. Do not judge others and you will not be judged. For you'll be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? And how can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite, first, get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with a speck in your friend's eye. Judging others is a tricky one. I always used to think, you know, this one person has, you know, he's being disobedient, he's not obeying the law, he's in error, and therefore I need to make sure I'm not in error first before I go and say something to him. It seems reasonable. But as I've been preparing and I've been praying and and, and looking at this verse, I, I felt God give me a different, slightly different take on it. That on the basis that the law is not sufficient, it's not something that will actually give us the results that we're looking for. The log is the higher, bigger standard that we can't really attain. And the speck might be the issue of law. So really what God's saying is, make sure you understand the purpose of this law. Make sure you understand where you sit and where they sit. And temper that with that understanding. There was the other story, before I go into that one, there was the other story about the, the, the woman who was caught in adultery. You know, and they were all baying there to stone her, and Jesus just sat quietly and kind of put his finger in the sand. Um, and he said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Alluding to the wider, not just the issue, not, not he who, is caught, who isn't caught in adultery, but he who is without sin cast the first stone. So it really kind of you know, helps us to think again 
before we do that. This, this is opinion, but I believe the Bible backs me up on this. The only legitimate standpoint where you can go to correct someone else comes from a heart and a motivation of love for that person. We've talked about how the danger of the, of the Pharisee in us, and I think it's very, very wrong to go to correct somebody in their behaviour from a Pharisaical perspective, to say, I am so righteous and, and, and good, and you are wrong. And there's a real risk in each and every one of us, because I think this can be really subtle. This Pharisaic thing within us can be really subtle, and we might not recognise it. So my encouragement is to think again. Where's this really coming from? Is this coming from a heart of love for this person or not? Jesus and Paul give us some really, really helpful lenses to look at this stuff in. Again, I've, I've continued on this path of kind of describing a problem. And I think they give us some solutions here. Uh, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So if you think about the law as this old covenant relationship, Jesus is our new covenant relationship. The old covenant, that ship has sailed. They, they had this marriage agreement, and if you know the story of the Old Testament, the Israelites, Israelites continually failed and got it wrong. And as a consequence, God's promise to them, a part of that covenant, came true. They were exiled from the land. It didn't go very well for them. The Pharisees, when we read in the Gospels, talking to Jesus, they're trying to reignite and revive some sense of what was before, which is why they're so obsessed with the law you know, if we can try and get something back by being ultra-pious and ultra-good and follow this stuff. Jesus, in effect, here is just saying, that ship sailed. It's gone. There's no point trying to do that again. He says, I have come to fulfill that. It's the new covenant. We no longer have to abide by that stuff because all you have to do is look to me, follow me, commit your life to me. The word law there could equally be translated as Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And the first five books of the Bible are narrative. It's not structured like a law code typically you get, it's a statutory law code. It's narrative. It's a story about the law. But that story is permeated with symbolism and prophecy of the coming king, the coming one who will come and deliver us and deliver this new covenant. Right in the very centre of the Torah, Leviticus is the middle book. The middle chapter of Leviticus talks about the scapegoat, where the priest will place their hand on the goat and the sins of the nation will go on that goat and then they exile the goat out to the wilderness. I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. It's this beautiful symbolism of Jesus right in the very centre of the Torah and the books of the law. So Jesus, he is our Sabbath rest. He is the hope and the promise that we read about in the Torah. He is our new covenant. In Mark, one of the scribes came up to Jesus and asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Very interesting that the scribes of the time were kind of like lawyers. You know, the, the law code could, you know, that they use at the time could get very complex. 
this tells me very clearly that they were struggling with the same stuff that we struggle with today in terms of how we interpret and use this stuff. So he comes to him and says, which is the most important? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Both of those are straight from the Torah. Hear, O Israel is known as the Jewish prayer, the Shema, which Jews would traditionally pray every morning and every evening, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. And you shall love your neighbour as yourself is right there in Leviticus 19. So Jesus was using what God says. He's kind of honing in on key aspects of what was in there to communicate what God was intending. And the bit I've underlined. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus is telling us that there is a hierarchy in all these things. I mean, that goes against my traditional background. You're thinking, you know, each of the laws is equal, and, you know, if you screw up on one, then, you know, it's all, you know, bets are off. No, there is a hierarchy. And what this tells me is if there's anything I read in the Bible that I think, oh, I I need to be doing that, I need to start checking it, because if it clashes with loving God and loving my neighbour... I need to re-question it. There is a context that I'm missing from that original one. Perhaps one because of the ancient Jewish, perhaps it's a history context, perhaps it's a genre context. There is a piece of context I'm missing if this contradicts anything that I've read in the Old Testament Torah. No commandment in all of Scripture trumps this one. Paul writes, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And look at this bit. Against such things, there is no law. It's a lens by which we now can look back at all those old kind of commandments and to check ourselves. If we try to follow any of those... And it does not result in any of those. Let's go back and re-question it. What's the context? What was trying to be done there? You know, you know, what am I misreading? The Bible does not contradict itself. It is one overarching narrative that points to Jesus. Symbolism here is that we are all trees. And naturally we all bear fruit. These are the kinds of fruits that people need to be seeing in our lives. And one of the challenges I really want for us this morning is to try and think about, you know, how are we at work? How are we at the school gates? How are we when we're, we're around, you know, non-Christians and, and other people? Um, what would they say were the fruits that they see in us? You know, I, I read some shocking stuff uh, sometimes on social media um, from people who profess that they're, they're Christian, perhaps some of these in relatively senior positions, and you see what they, they put out on social media, and I'm looking at that, and I'm just seeing a bit of hate there. And now I'm asking myself the question, you know what, this is my new measuring stick. I'm now living by this. I'm looking and I'm questioning what I'm reading on social media, what some of, you know, some of these kind of well-known pastors are putting out, and I look at what I'm reading 
And I look at that list. And sometimes, sadly, it breaks my heart. I say, they don't join up. Let's please question and look through the lenses that Jesus and Paul give us on these things. A couple of challenges I think I've already given you. When you read the Bible, try and appreciate the context. And I know that's not, you can't click your fingers and suddenly get that context overnight. It does involve a bit of investment. I can help you out with some free online tools that can, uh, that just come see me afterwards and I can send you emails with, with stuff to help you. And measure yourself and measure others by the fruits of the Spirit. It's kind of the end of my slides, but I, I particularly felt when I was preparing, there are so many things here that I can, I can invite you forward to respond for. Um, and I never settled on, on one or two. And I spoke to God about it, and I just felt, God said to me, freestyle it. <laughs> um, so God, you're up. <laughs> I guess I want to... In- so. First of all, I just want to say this because I don't want to forget it. You know, if you've come here and you're in need for anything, whether it's physical healing or there's a broken relationship or there's financial trouble or anything that's going on in your life that's dominating, we have a wonderful prayer corner here and you've got people who love to pray for you. Please don't miss that opportunity. Don't walk out that door you know, and regret it when you're in the car thinking, oh, I should have gone for prayer. They're lovely people. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll pray with you. We also have an area over here um, Actually, it's quite busy at the moment because of the setup. But, um, you know, if you want to respond in your own way, just you and God, no one is going to pray for you. You can actually go over to that corner, just sit quietly and do your business with God. But I think, you know, in response to specifically to this message, I, I want to call people forward. First of all, you know, if, if God's stirring something within you, you perhaps you've got those butterflies, um, perhaps, you know... I don't know, got a bit of a sweat on or something. That's happened to me before, by the way. <laughs> um, just come forward and, you know, I'd love to pray for you. If, if you've really struggled with this stuff and things haven't sat right, perhaps you're starting to see a bit of clarity, perhaps from what I've presented. This is where the theme of freedom comes in. Because we know that Jesus has come to set us free. And the law, the New Testament calls the law a curse. It was a curse and a burden on the Israelites. If you're living that way, or you've been struggling and wondering how to behave, and you've been trying to follow the law and stuff, that's a burden, that's chains for you. Jesus has come to set you free. Follow me, Jesus says. And you know what? When you follow him, the Holy Spirit starts to work in your life. The Holy Spirit starts to write things on your heart and in your spirit. And you find that your behaviour starts to change because of him, not through your own kind of logical, I need to follow this and do that and then I'll be good. It's like, before you even recognise it, your behaviour starts to change. I remember when I first gave my life to Jesus. Um, it was a weekend away at a, at a youth event and I went home and I was singing and dancing around the house. And my parents kept saying, what's gone on, Dave? What's different? What's changed? You know? they, they, I mean, they could not understand why suddenly I changed. Jesus has come to me. Follow me. I will make you a new creation. Living under this new covenant. 
And this new covenant is not based on following rules, it's based on following Jesus. And he has done everything for us. Even to the point of dying on a cross, suffering to carry this burden for us. Ali, would you mind playing on the keyboard for a bit? I so, so, I'm passionate about each and every one of you experiencing a taste of what the Holy Spirit can do in your life. I just, oh, I'm so passionate. I'd, I'd just love to pray for you. So perhaps that's what God's calling me to. You know, one of the responses, if you've never felt that taste of the Holy Spirit working in your heart, I'd love, love to pray for you. If perhaps you've, you know, this is the first time you've heard any stuff like this, Jesus might be calling you this morning. In fact, I'm convinced he is. I'd love to pray a prayer with you. You know, Jesus comes and finds us. We always kind of fool ourselves into saying, well, I found Jesus. You know what? He's found you. And if you feel that tug on your heart this morning, I'm going to suggest to you that that's Jesus calling you. Father God first of all I just want to thank you for your word the beauty and the majesty the literary genius that it is teach us Father how to read your word give us a new passion and a new fire for reading your word Will you really start to tug on heartstrings here this morning, Lord? Start to tug on heartstrings for those people that you're calling to respond to this word. Really now, start to tug.